Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic growth and marketing firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment. Today, we're talking with Kathleen Lehner. She is a patient care coordinator over at Ashley Addiction Treatment, and she shares with us a lot about her role and the value it brings to patients. Before we talk to her, I'd like to hear a word from our wonderful sponsors, Soberlink. Professionals, like those that listen to the Recovery Executive Podcast, know that technology-assisted care is improving all aspects of healthcare. Addiction treatment is no different. Soberlink is an accountability tool that's helped thousands of people in early recovery. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, it's a discrete alcohol monitoring system with real-time results and reports. You can improve your client's outcomes with the latest technology recommended by four out of five treatment providers. For a limited time and for Recovery Executive Podcast listeners, you can get a free Soberlink device by visiting www.soberlink.com free. So patient care coordination is not a role that I find present in every facility. I'd say most facilities tend to have maybe a discharge planner or a case manager um, on occasion. The patient care coordinator role is a little bit unique and is a bit more comprehensive than I think what you'd find in some of these other roles. The advantage to having a patient care coordinator is that you have you know, a really strong connect between not just the patient and their internal treatment plans with other stakeholders within the treatment program, but also outside. And it takes a lot of the paperwork, it takes a lot of the navigating around trying to get different documents across different providers from the outside to connect with what you're doing in the treatment program. So there's a lot of value to the role. And because it's not super common within the treatment space at this time, I wanted to have Kat on the show to walk us through how the role works, what the value of the role is from her perspective, and how she's seen it benefit patients. So with that, let's jump in and listen to what Kat has to say. Hey, Kat, really excited to have you on the show today. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do at Ashley? Hey, Nick. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, so, my name is Kat Lennox-Scott. I'm one of the patient care coordinators at Ashley Addiction Treatment. Um, I really work to ensure that every patient on my caseload's needs are met while they're here and ensure their needs are met when they leave here to the best of our ability and ensure that continuity of care. Um, Ashley, we continue to grow. Um, we have five locations now. Um, we have our residential inpatient campus here in Habit of Grace. We have two extended cares, one for emerging adult men and one for women. Um, and we have two outpatient locations as well. Interesting. Did you say emerging adult men? Is that like young adults or what does that translate to? So emerging adult is kind of like a soft adjective um, where we have a soft cap on 30, 32, but it really depends on the particular man's needs, right? Um, it could be we could have a 24-year-old who's married with kids and has a solid job already where he might be more um, more appropriate for our primary program coming into Ashley, uh, but then have a 30-year-old who's 
still living with his parents and hasn't really gotten his career off the ground where he might be more appropriate for emerging adult services. Got it. That's some good marketing there. <laughs> I, I was thinking the failure to launch crowd. I'm like, that always sounds so negative. So that's, that's a good way to put it. I like that. Um, so, okay. So the patient care coordinator, um, you know, I think a couple facilities have that, but it's not a super common job description. You often hear, you know, case management or discharge planning. Can you give us a little bit more around um, the distinction of that particular role and how it works at Ashley? Sure. So here at Ashley, we have multiple different teams here within each of our programs. So we have pain recovery, we have primary, um, which would be someone who's never had a significant amount of sobriety or it's their first time in treatment. Um, we have a relapse program, um, and then we have emerging adult services. Um, and each of those teams has a patient care coordinator that works with them. Or, like, I work with primary, I work with pain recovery, I work with the emerging adult young ladies, and with our women's extended care program. Um, and we really kind of share on an interdisciplinary basis with the counselors. Um, we handle the referent relations, if there's any referring providers on the case, um, or any kind of outside physician or specialty provider that would be appropriate for case collaboration while they're here. Um, and then we also assist on a peer, like a peer support-based level, trying to engage them in those motivators for aftercare and kind of really showing that like discharge planning kind of starts when you enter the door. We want to make sure that um, you have a concrete game plan for continued recovery, no matter what your aftercare recommendation turns out to be or what's appropriate for your certain life circumstances. Okay. And just to clarify, so does Ashley have case managers and discharge planners? Are those separate roles or does the patient care coordinator kind of fulfill those roles? We help the counselors fulfill their case management. We kind of divide and conquer um, where it's clinically appropriate. Um, and then we handle discharge planning for the most part, but we really do work as a team when it comes to each patient and their family and referring providers. Got it. Okay. So kind of walk us through the role and how it plays out. You know, what's the process for a new patient is coming into treatment? You know, when do you first connect? What do you do? How does that all work out? Yes. So we, in a perfect world, we engage with the patient within 72 hours of admission. But of course, that depends on the admitting late on a Friday, things like that. Um, we would like to meet with the patient within 72 hours, get to know them, um, get to educate them on continuing care and what our role provides for them, um, but also getting a real like case conceptualization on our, is there an outside provider that we should connect with, um, what's your family's involvement, um, is there anything to know about uh, a spouse, a significant other, things like that. Um, and we really follow them. We try to touch base with every patient on our caseload every week and just try to keep a pulse on their motivators for change and their willingness to engage in ongoing recovery, whatever that might look like. Okay, so it sounds like there's a logistical component. for like So for example, let's say that someone's coming into intake and they need their, their med charts or their med records. You know, is, is that you? Would you be coordinating that with their PCP or the hospitals? Um, so prior to admission, that would be our intake department getting a hold of those records. But if it's something that comes up along the way while they're in treatment, we can certainly assist. We also have an executive medical assistant that helps out with that as well. Okay. 
So you're helping them out after they've already come into the facility. And then, but you are helping out with things like communications with their PCPs or a therapist or anyone providing prescription medications, right? Like you manage all that kind of that paperwork and all the, the jungle of um, communication. Is that right? Yep. Once they enter our facility, if there's any ongoing communication as far as um, medical records or any kind of, um, not necessarily their medication, but usually we like to have handled before they come to campus and admit with us. Um, but if there's any ongoing case collaboration, I know specifically psychologists, psychiatrists, or even interventionists, whoever the case may be, they like to keep a pulse on their progress um, in treatment with us. Okay. And then do you do any communication with the families at all? Yeah, so we also, when we meet with the patient, like I said, in a perfect world, 72 hours, we also like to re get permission to reach out to their family about continuing care. Um, because a lot of times, we also do have a family program. Um, we have a family wellness program that will engage with the families as well to support them in their own recovery process while their loved one is with us. But we also like to engage with them, educate them on what continuing care is, how our recommendation process plays out, and what they can expect for that planning process, um, because that seems to be one of the really big fears when it comes to families while their loved ones are with us. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what are some of the kind of communications you have on that? Because, you know, that's a big complaint that comes from families sometimes is they don't know mm -hmm. what to do, right? After their loved one comes back, they're not sure, like, is, is he better now? Are we supposed to help? Are we not supposed to help? You know, what kind of advice do you generally give fa families in your role? So in my role, it's really going to be planning for the, well, planning for aftercare, but also the importance of continuing care. Um, I think a lot of times, whether it's the patient or their family, they think that 20-day residential treatment should cure them, and they don't really have the concept of that this is a, a longer process than that and often a lifelong process. Um, the substance use affects everyone differently, but for the most part, when someone is admitting to treatment and they've never done so before, they might have like those unrealistic expectations. So providing that education and just stressing the importance, and we, that's also why we have um, one of our family wellness uh, counselors is involved in each of the programs here on campus and at our extended cares and even our outpatient as well um, to engage the families and really be able to provide that extra education and support for them specifically and not really about how their fam their loved ones doing with us but providing them support of, like parallels to their loved ones uh, treatment with us. Okay. And then are you providing them any guidance around ways that they can support once their loved one uh, returns home? Yeah, we do. We have um, parent-family connection, and we also have family virtual family workshops right now, where one of, that is one of the topics is, is it going to be, I know one topic is codependency. Um, they try to pick a specific topic for each workshop that um, best suits those uh, concerns because that really is like the common concern with every family is we can't go through this again or what do we do if it happens again all those yeah. all those fears I mean they are legitimate fears but right. trying to support them to the best of our ability okay and then in your role it sounded like it wasn't just logistics it sounded like you were kind of checking in with the patient on a, a personal level as well um, so what kind of things are, are you monitoring anything specifically in terms of like mood or how they're progressing in treatment? You know, what, what's your role in that area? So we're not really assessing that per se, but we are, we do participate in each interdisciplinary, um, meeting every day that we're affiliated with. 
so that we can be as up-to-date as possible on the patients that are on our caseload. So if a, if a patient's struggling with really high anxiety or depression or just a really hard detox, um, I'll, of course, be in rounds and I'll hear that and I'll know maybe I'll put off meeting with them for a couple of days or maybe I should check in with them more depending on the, what the case may be. I think one of the beautiful things about our team is that each of us are also persons in long-term recovery, so we have that peer engagement level as well. So it sounds like you have a pretty good pulse on, you know, how the patient's doing, how they're feeling treatment. You're touching base pretty regularly. Um, are you involved in kind of like a, an AMA or an ACA blocking process at all? You know, do you monitor for those things and do you kind of have any protocols in case you think that someone might be thinking about leaving? Absolutely. Um, so during each of those um, programs rounds, we tried to identify and talk about any patients that might be a risk of AMA or ACA. Um, we also, when we have that initial session with a patient, we're checking where they came from. Was it from home? Was it from another facility? Would they be returning home in a situation like that? Um, and assessing their insurance provider as well and kind of their their whole aspect of if they were to ACA, what kind of resources can I put to provide them or attempt to coordinate for them so that, that they can discharge in the safest way possible. Okay. Um... So, you know, that's a lot that's kind of on your shoulders, right? You're working with this diverse array of providers and trying to coordinate everything there. You're helping the patient through kind of the treatment process. You're helping your own internal staff, you know, with some of the things that are coming up. What are some of the regular challenges that come up in your role? I think some of the challenges is whether either the patients themselves aren't ready to engage or be motivated or even the family can have their unrealistic expectations can form a pushback. Um, but I think we really do a lot of footwork to navigate those. For the most part, everything changes day to day in substance use treatment. So just being able to navigate that and help the patient and their families navigate that. Um, I'd rather have the barrier of having to know, like we're very educated on what programs we're referring to. So sometimes it's just knowing what's the intake process, what's the referral process, what kind of timetable does this provider have, um, and being able to prep the patient and the family for those things. Um, we have an incredible clinical outreach staff that keep us up to date on any changes with the programs that we refer to because that's really important if a patient all of a sudden wants to leave ACI or wants to even just leave early being able to know, like, hey, I need at least three days to be able to get medical records over there, to be able to get them on the phone with the program, like things like that. Those are really important in this role. Uh, do you ever find it challenging just communicating or reaching out or getting what you need from some of the outside providers? Sometimes. Every single provider has their own process, right? Like some will want a copy of the release of information we have on file before they'll even talk to us or... Sometimes their online information, contact information could be inaccurate, like things like that that come up. But for the most part, it really just, as long as you can stay on top of it, check in voicemails, check in emails, like you said, happen on one call to another. And that's what we got to do to make sure we meet our patients' needs. And then do you have any like regular, not necessarily providers, but let's say you're working with, a, you have a patient that comes from a union or a specific EAP or maybe a Native American tribe. Sometimes they have specific protocols that they're wanting you to follow. You know, do you get involved with that process at all or does that come up? Yes. So since our team as patient care coordinators, we are handling for the most part the referent relations and that includes EAP providers or case managers, depending on 
the company or, or insurance provider who's handling that. And EAP reporting, even though it is completed by the counselor, it kind of falls on our shoulders to ensure that it is reported in a timely manner so that, the, that effective communication is ongoing. Because EAP, it's their, you, typically it's their employer that is requiring that. Um, we don't want to create any kind of barriers for ongoing recovery or employment when our patients leave. Right. Okay. So you guys actually manage that whole relationship from, from when the patient's coming in. Okay. That, that makes sense. Right. Uh, what about internally? So are, do you do anything around the treatment plan? Are you communicating or do you act as a go-between between group and individual therapists, for example? Yeah, so what's really beautiful about Ashley is that each of our programs here has their own huddle meeting every single day. So we have a representative from each provider, whether it's psychology, family services, medical, nursing, all the counselors, we try to make sure that we touch base on anything pressing that day so that everybody is up to date. And even though we have a separate continuing care plan to our treatment plan, so we try to make sure that even if, let's say, for instance, a continuing care recommendation is intensive outpatient services and ongoing medication management, I will meet with the patient and see, do they also need a return PCP appointment? Do they also need to go to any other specialty providers? And even if they do not choose to engage in those things. I still give them resources for every level of care in case they ever need them. And like post-discharge, do you have any connection to the patient at all? So a lot of times patients will engage with their counselor or patient care coordinator post-discharge because they know us. We do engage them in alumni services as well, um, but sometimes that takes a little while to build those relationships post-discharge. So we are more than willing to continue engaging with patients when they do leave us. Um, and sometimes they have questions about the continuing care plan. Did they miss an appointment? They feel more comfortable calling me to reschedule the appointment than reaching out to a new provider they've never been to before, things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Thinking about it from the patient perspective, you know, what are some things that they should be thinking about? Because obviously, you know, you're helping them out while they're in treatment. There's a lot to manage and navigate. But once they leave, you know, you're not necessarily going to be there for them. So what are some things that you try to help patients with to be, you know, self-sufficient once they get out? Yeah, so we try to educate them on each of the resources we're giving them for every different level of care. So if A were to happen, you should call this person. If B were to happen, you can call this provider. Trying to educate them because a lot of times, especially if it's their first time in treatment or ever seeking treatment or help, it can be kind of daunting, right? Like they get comfortable here, but then stepping down to another level of care or transitioning to another provider can be very uh, fear-provoking. They get comfortable in the, the Ashley bubble here on campus, as we call it. Um, but making sure that they're, they're ready for whatever that next step is. And I think it's a lot of education involved to learn those skills. What are some particular skills or just you know tips you might have for people uh, to be more successful stepping down from you know, a residential level of care where they're you know, in a pretty sheltered, as you said, a bubble, right? And then going back into the real world. Have you seen anything that really works for patients? I think the most highlighted ones would be the patients from our pain recovery program because so many of them have never sought substance use treatment before. So being able to work with them and kind of show them how they can advocate for themselves. They don't have to uh, ruminate in their pain. They don't have to remain helpless. They can actually find that voice while they're here with us, and that helps a lot with that aspect. But sometimes they do. They call back. They want uh, a little bit of 
more engagement, more hand-holding, and we will provide that to them. We're always willing to help any Ashley patient or alumni, no matter where they are in their continuum of care. That's an interesting comment. It's probably a better question for Jessica when she was on, but you know, sometimes when we go to the doctor, there's just kind of this assumption that one of the purposes of that visit or the purpose of the doctor is just to take away the pain, right? But that's not always the best answer. Is that something that you guys kind of work on with Ashley when you're talking about that self-advocacy? Yeah, and teaching them different ways to not only interpret, handle, and cope with those uncomfortable feelings. Because at the end of the day, pain is just another uncomfortable feeling that we're experiencing for the first time in early recovery and treatment. And how did you originally find yourself or your way into this role? Did you start as a patient care coordinator? Did you start somewhere else and move into this role? How did that evolve? That's a really funny story. Um, (laughs) So I had applied for something totally different at Ashley. So my recovery, personal recovery journey started in Annapolis, Maryland, probably about an hour and a half from here. And I was managing a female recovery house. And I decided that I wanted to move back home, which is very local to Ashley and Hagrid Grace, and I applied for a totally different role and got a call from the HR department here probably two or three months later offering me another completely different role, Um, and I actually started my career here with Ashley at one of our outpatient locations in Bel Air. I was one of the administrative assistants with the front office of the intensive outpatient in Bel Air and slowly but surely found my way on campus, and when I heard about patient care coordination, Um, It's something that is just near and dear personally to me. Um, My own personal treatment experience did not include any kind of aftercare or importance of continuing care. Um, And being able to really show and highlight that for our patients and their families, I think it's just an invaluable resource to have as part of a treatment team. Has Ashley always had this role? Do you know how long this role has been around? I do not know for certain, but I can say that our senior growth officer started as a patient care coordinator, so it's been around for a while. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it sounds like you really enjoy the role. You enjoy working at Ashley. I mean, what do you find most rewarding about it? I think what's most rewarding is that I get to work with such a diverse population of patients. From the emerging adult young women where I can be like, I was in your shoes in a separate treatment center. I have probably done everything you've done and worse. Um, Let me help you through that from a peer level. So then to our pain recovery patients, to um, some of the professionals I get to work with, it's never a dull moment. And what's most rewarding is when I'm going over that finalized continuing care plan and the patient has a totally different aspect on what they need to do when they leave our campus to continue working on their recovery. Any particular success stories that you want to share? Yeah, so one that sticks out to me is it was one of our emerging adult women, and she did not want to follow any continuing care recommendation. She really thought that this was not her first time in treatment, but I think it was her first time with us. And um, she, up until that very last day, did not want to engage in ongoing recovery, and she came to my office. She didn't have an appointment, and she was like, Pat, I think I just had that off. a spiritual awakening thing everybody keeps talking about. <laughs> and it just made me laugh so hard. And um, I just always have a soft spot for the quote-unquote underdog in any aspect of life, but they're also my favorite patients. And when she came into my office, she sat down and she was like, what do I have to do to go like to residential aftercare? 
and we sat down and we broke down all the options for her, and luckily we were able to extend her stay a couple of days so we could really coordinate a solid and safe transition for her. But she still checks into this day. That was over. That was almost a year ago, and she's just she's doing the dang thing, and she is so engaged, and she's sponsoring other women, and it's just it's really cool to see when that happens. Nice. The, the light comes on. The full recovery light bulb. Yeah, that's great. I mean, those success stories are really what keep you going because obviously it's a, it's always emotionally intense, you know, being in these roles. Uh, how about just some of the logistics, you know? So, like, what is your what does your patient load look like? How many patients are you you know coordinating at any given time? That varies. So, like, our emerging adult and our pain recovery program census can vary just depending on even time of year or like everybody's going back to school now so that affects things like that but for the most part I say we try not to go over 20 patients on one of our caseloads um, I work with five different counselors but we really we work as a team so if there's ever a point where one of the patient care coordinators caseloads is getting a little too uneven one of us will step in and adopt some of their patients from their caseload and help out we never want one of us to be burnt out and um, really struggling. So we all, we work as a team, which makes it really nice. Got it. Okay. So, you know, if you're doing 20 patients, that's about two hours a week per patient. I mean, that's, that's still quite a bit. Is How much of that is face-to-face -face versus, you know, just kind of paperwork and connecting with outside providers? I would say, depending on the case, about a half hour of that is face-to-face -face or Within, it could be up to an hour and a half of that if we are facilitating any kind of group or lecture that week as well. But for the most part, it's about a half an hour that we're working with them and making sure that they understand what we're explaining to them, whether they're signing a release of information, getting on the phone with the program, um, touching base with their family. Sometimes a lot of that is more behind the scenes than the patient's not actually right in front of us in the office. Sure. And then do you do anything around, do you help out with like documentation if you're connecting to utilization review or is any of the work that you do, you know, get passed up to the payers in terms of maybe higher level of service that might, you know, require higher reimbursement for patients or anything like that? Everything, of course, as you know, being in healthcare, if it's not documented, it didn't happen. So we have our own um, documentation process for continuing care planning and all the contacts we make. And as far as you are, um, I'm probably not the best to speak to that, but continuing care planning is definitely plays a role um, in safe recovery environments when you're justifying utilization coverage. So sometimes uh, extensions of stay will be significantly tied to continuing care planning, whether it's one of the patients is not open-minded or willing, motivated even, to engage in whatever um, their next step is, if we need some extra time for that. A lot of times that is communicated to the payer. Um, and just making sure that, like, we start discharge planning basically from the door. We try to meet with them in 72 hours, so knowing that we're, we're keeping a pulse on that while, while patients are with us. And then let's say that a patient comes back into um, the facility. Do you usually get assigned to the same person if it's someone that you had before, or does it, they just kind of get matched with whoever's available? It really depends on the patient's needs. So if the patient had a significant amount of recovery time when they left us, they might go to a they might be assigned to a different program here on campus. So they might be working with a different patient care coordinator. But for the most part, we try to not have them work with the same person again, just because we want to try something different. But a lot of times, 
um, we're all on the same team, so we collaborate on cases regardless. Got it. And so you said you were assigned to, you know, particular programs that you're working in. Is there any particular rhyme or reason to that? You know, is there, do you have any personal interests or specialties in those areas or it just kind of happens to be the program you're assigned to? I think for the pain recovery program in emerging adult women, it was because I could relate on a peer level with those patients. But for the rest of my caseload, I think it was just as the chips laid. We try to, we really tried to get our arms around every patient here. So however we need to do that, whether it's case delegation and things like that, we do that. But sometimes program assignment, like for instance, if a patient comes back a year later and they had almost a year of recovery while they weren't with us and they were here in the primary program before, then they would probably be appropriate for a relapse program that second admission. Got it. Any kind of um, final thoughts, you know, comments on things that we didn't touch on that's really important around the patient care coordinator role? I really think it is making sure that you can relate on that peer level is what is beautiful in at least at Ashley, that we can help them see that their journey just starts here. It doesn't end here. We never, quote, unquote, graduate from being in recovery. I think that is a really unique stance on continuing care, and I've seen it work time and time again here. Yeah, that brings up an interesting question. You know, sometimes you get patients into a program and let's say you got a bunch of um, emerging adults, you know, as you guys designated them, but then you'll have an older gentleman in that program. He feels like he's 30, 40 years older than the rest of the people in the group, has a hard time connecting. You know, do you guys have the potential in your role to match people with patient care coordinators that are coming from similar backgrounds or similar ages or demographics in that sense? Not every single um, age or demographic, but we have a, a pretty good group right now where we try our hardest to make sure that we meet those needs. Yeah, it's interesting. Any stories around that in terms of that working out? I mean, because I just, I've talked to so many patients where that's usually one of the complaints that comes up is like, you know, great program, got a lot of value here, but I just had a hard time connecting with people. So to have an outside patient care coordinator that they could connect with, I could see a lot of value there. So yeah, I just wonder if you've had any particular stories where you've seen that work really well. And I think there is a lot of value there. Having that, there is a therapeutic value being able to see that someone has walked through similar situations to me or they've been in this kind of scenario and have found their way out without using. Like, that's such a huge thing. Or they've gone to treatment multiple times and they've been able to get to the other side of that and have a, a lasting, ongoing recovery. Sometimes those are things where we think we're terminally unique, where I remember I went to treatment for the third time and I was like, I can't believe I can't even do rehab right. I remember thinking that to myself. And I have patients that will use those, essentially the same exact words and I can relate to them on that level. For me personally, because I have that kind of relationship with pain recovery and emerging adult women, I think it's incredible value, especially to have them engage in a continuity of care and show them that it is important. If we could just come for 28 days and everything be great, grand, and wonderful afterwards, we would tell you that would be what would happen. But we have seen that that's not what works. You have to engage in continued ongoing recovery and activities that are going to feed that. Um, and having that peer relationship really helps. Yeah, you know, slightly off topic, but I just see that so um, often, you know, what you call terminal uniqueness, right? You go into so many programs and the people in those programs just believe that, you know, 
no one else is like them and their situation doesn't really conform to anyone else's situation but you don't just see it in the people struggling with addiction you see it with uh the parents and the family members as well you know when you go to parental support groups a lot of the times they were like well i thought i was so alone i thought no one else was going through this i'm so surprised you know, despite all the media attention, right, and it being everywhere, you still get those comments. And that's always kind of surprised me. And the patients do it as well. Later on, they'll say, well, I, you know, they had this epiphany, right? And they're like, I realized that these other people in the room were just like me and I could relate to them or they had similar experiences. And it's just interesting how often that comes up. It really, really does. Like, looking back on my own personal experience, I can see where, like, how everyone hits that quote-unquote rock bottom, like I had to hit my head on it a couple of times before <laughs> it But like everybody has their own process, right? And I think that's what's so beautiful about substance use treatment is when you're at a provider, like I've never seen anything like at Ashley. I've had experiences in other treatment centers personally, and what happens here is just really, really unique, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. So if someone wanted to contact you or get in touch with Ashley, what would be the best way to do that? I think the most responsive would be um, our main number, which is 800-799-HOPE, which is 4673. We're also really responsive via social media and our website. All right. Okay. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. That was super helpful. Uh, And then to all of our listeners out there, as always, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Jaworski. We hope to see you here next time.